text of this Easter sermon is the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. Not be possible to read the entire text because of the time limitation. And so I'll read just verses 25 and 26. You'll understand that this message comes from this entire story and beautiful scripture. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Things had not been easy for our Lord. There had been numerous attempts on his life. His methods and motives had been slandered. And then he received this urgent request, this urgent message from the sisters of a close friend. Lazarus is critically ill. Come quickly. It was several days when Jesus finally arrived in Bethany. Someone saw the group approaching, so they sent word back to the house where for four days they had been grieving the death of Lazarus. Martha left the house to go meet the group, and Mary stayed with the house full of Jewish mourners. Her greeting to Jesus that day is really just another one of those scriptural indications of the open and honest relationships Jesus had with those He knew best. She blurted out, If you had been here, our brother would not have died. And I think that honest statement is one that you and I have probably bottled up or blurted out in the time of our own mourning. Jesus, Lord, where were you when I needed you the most? And I think that they reveal the fact that man's mind is haunted by the fact of death. It haunts him as he reviews history. I mean, what about these countless generations over which the tides of time have passed? What about them? There was a time when Xerxes, the king of Persia, reviewed his mighty host marching against Greece, and he broke down and wept. He wept because he knew that in less than a hundred years, not a single one of them would be left, and few of them would be remembered. It haunts, the, haunts us as we meditate on our own experience. Death doesn't bother us too much when we're young, for time seems to stretch out endlessly before us. But when we get about 40, we begin to think about death. And we realize that time is not an endless commodity, but a precious one. Woody Allen said, I don't want to gain immortality by my writings. I want to gain immortality by never dying. But we all know that we will. And from the shadows comes the question, why should I go down the hill to the westering sunset and die before half my work is done? And it haunts us in the regions of our love. We may deal with our own death with a shrug, but we cannot remain indifferent when death invades the circle of our loves. And so Martin Luther held his 14-year-old daughter Magdalene in his arms as she died. And in his tears he said, Magdalene, you'll rise and shine as the stars and the sun. And then he said, 
I can't understand why she is at peace and all is well, and I'm so sorrowful. And so Martha came haunted by death that had invaded the circle of her love, and in almost bitterness she met her Lord and said, Where were you when we needed you the most? But Jesus really didn't deal with the bitterness. He dealt with the sorrow that had caused the bitterness. And he said, Thy brother shall rise again. And she said, I know he'll rise again at the last day, as if to say, Well, what about now? That doesn't help my sorrow now. And so Jesus spoke those words that should be engraved in gold in the most prominent place in your mind and mine. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will never really die, and he who is dead shall live. And that, my friend, is the Easter message. But I want to gather up the message of this text, and I want to set it under three prominent words that really tell what Easter means. The first word is person. The person of Jesus. He said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And that great I am is in the eternal present tense. It means I have always been and shall always be the resurrection and the life. Wherever I am, there is resurrection, he said. Wherever I am, there is life. So that the resurrection is not some incident or idea, but an individual. It's not some far-off event or some far-past event, but the dynamic personality of Jesus in the present. And so Martha tried to push this resurrection event off to some last days. But Jesus responded to her by saying that he himself is the resurrection and that where he is, there is life. He was present there physically and there would be a physical resurrection. In a moment, Lazarus would live again. And when he returns at the end of the age, he'll return physically. And there'll be a physical resurrection then, for every grave shall give up its dead. But in other times, as in the present, he is present spiritually. So there is a spiritual resurrection. And every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ has experienced that spiritual resurrection. That's what Paul meant when he said, You were dead in trespasses and sins, but Jesus Christ came to give you life. So Christianity lays its emphasis not upon something new to know or something new to feel or something new to do. Christianity lays its emphasis upon someone you can know and someone you can trust and someone you can follow, and that someone is Jesus, the Son of God, who keeps on offering Himself. Religious leaders have come through the ages to say, I will show you the way, I will teach you the truth, I will tell you about life. But Jesus came saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Something significant happened to me this week, to our community. A group of about a hundred men gathered out in this ballroom at Southeastern on Tuesday morning to hear Fred Roach speak. Fred Roach is a wealthy man. He's president of Centennial Homes, a subsidiary of Weyerhaeuser. He is the past president of the largest development corporation in the world. He travels with governors. He dines with, with presidents. And that man stood out there without any embarrassment or shame, and he told a hundred men, 
that the most significant person in his life was Jesus Christ, that Jesus had come to indwell him, that the living dynamic God had come to live in his life, to bring him life, that the purpose for his being was to please him and to serve him and to honor and glorify him. He told us that the most significant thing that had ever happened to him was that the living Christ had come to indwell him. And I thought that's what Christianity is about. It's not some creed to quote. It's not some discipline to accept. It's not some theology to learn. It is the fact of the living God in Jesus Christ who has come to indwell the believer and to live in him, a dynamic to make him alive. And I realize how I've made a mistake every Easter. I suppose it's the mistake of every preacher. We gather on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday, and we talk about an event that happened 2,000 years ago, or we talk about an event that will happen in the future imminently when we are raised after we die. And we forget that the resurrection is really the introduction of Jesus Christ to men. He is the resurrection and the life. And so I tell you, not about some past event, but some present reality, some personality who is in this very room. His name is Jesus. The second word that seems to stand out in this Easter message is the word passion. God hurts with us. The shortest verse in the Bible is in this text that I did not really read. Jesus wept. Two words. I suppose you've all been in a Sunday school class where the teacher asks you to quote scripture verses. Lucky guy who got called on first. He always got to quote Jesus wept. When I was young, that was about all that verse meant to me, really. Just a good verse to answer a Sunday school roll call with. means a lot more to me now. As a matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon, who preached twice from this text in the course of his ministry, said, There is infinitely more in those two words than any sermonizer or Bible student will ever draw from them, even though we apply the microscope of utmost attentive consideration to them. Jesus wept. Underline it. Mark it in red. Capitalize it. Put an exclamation point behind it. and Take the microscope of utmost attentive consideration to it. What does it mean? It means that Jesus feels grief just like we. The two words Jesus wept in English are one word in the Greek, inibrimisato in the Greek. It's a dynamite word. It's only used three times in the New Testament, but historically it was used for the snorting of a horse in the heat of battle or under a heavy burden. And it came to mean that groan that was wrenched from the Spirit by some intense emotion. Jesus groaned. It means that Jesus knows what it means to stand by a grave and feel sorrow that almost breaks your heart. It means that Jesus knows what it means to be so lonely you think you're the only one left. It means that Jesus knows what it means to be rejected. The hardest blow of all, and when that rod of rejection comes smashing down upon the Spirit, He knows how that feels. These words are God's way of saying, I am here, I love you, I care. And the pagan reader of John's Gospel must have been amazed at that truth. For the Greek mind, the Greek had been told always in his life to believe that deity was cold, detached, impersonal, emotionless truth. 
In the pagan world, the characteristic word for deity was apatheia. It's a word that means to be incapable of emotion or feeling. And so that their idea of deity was that he could not be touched at all or could not be moved. You can kind of understand how they could arrive at that kind of logic. They reasoned that if a person could feel emotion, joy or sorrow, grief or gladness, that somebody could have an effect on him. Let me illustrate it. If I, can, if, if I can feel emotion, joy, sorrow, grief, or gladness, that means that Larry can have an effect on me. He can cause me to feel joy or sadness. So at that point in time when he's doing that, he exercises control over me. And the Greek could not conceive of a God who would be under the control of man. God standing by a grave weeping, God with a tear on his face, never... What a disclosure Jesus brought us of God. That this God could be touched with our feelings, that He's come in the midst of our sorrows to say to us, I am here, I feel for you, I care, I love you. And these words say, I see your tears. Spurgeon said, there is no petition that has a greater prevailing upon God than a liquid prayer distilled from the heart, trickling out of the eye and watering the cheek. Then he said, God is won by the voice of our weeping. He sees our tears. The question is, do we see His? And the scripture says that when those around the grave saw Jesus weep, they said, my how he loved them, how he loves him. The question is, do we see his? Doesn't it do something to you this morning that God weeps for you? Does it do something to you this morning to know that God weeps for you? Does it touch your heart to see him standing by a grave, standing in the presence of death, deeply distressed, and angry because sin had caused that. Does it touch your heart that God feels like that for you? And does it teach you to love Him? Someone told about a woman who went to the northern coast of Africa to be a missionary to Tunis to work with the Muslims. Work was slow and they did not respond, but she stayed. She decided she would teach literacy. She would teach them how to read and write, how to speak English, just offer it as a course to break into the community life. And a young man came to be tutored in English. She taught him for a while, but she would preach to him, teach him, tell him about Jesus. But he refused. Adamantly he rejected. Kindly, but he refused. Came time for him to go away to prep school. She had a dinner for him to say goodbye. At the dinner table, she urged him again to give his heart to Christ. He refused. Time to say goodbye. He went out the steps, down the walk to the gate in the yard of her house, turned to look back and saw this dear godly woman standing in the door weeping. And that's what won him. He turned and went back and they went inside and they sat down and she told him again about Jesus and he invited Jesus Christ into his life. He was won by her tears. Do you see his tears? Do you understand that he weeps 
in sorrow for the sin of the world? Does it touch your heart that he is sorrowful for us? Passion. There is one other word in this text, one other Easter idea that I want to mention, please. That's the word power. The message of Easter is a message of power. Paul said that he was declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. Power to vindicate his Son for the resurrection was his sudden and unexpected attestation of all the highest dreams anyone had ever had of the Messiah. The resurrection was God's own seal upon Christ's messianic messianic claims about himself. The resurrection was God's final vindication of His Son. Two other times in His ministry, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But now, in dynamic finality, He says it again, This is my Son. The resurrection is a vindication, power of vindication of righteousness so that every person here who is fighting the good fight of faith can understand that the universe is on your side. Christ rose and righteousness was vindicated. The resurrection is power to make Jesus alive forever. John Maysfield's marvelous Easter play, he has Polonius come in, the the chief soldier in charge of the execution to make his final report to Pilate. They They took him down from the cross, they put him in the tomb, and now he comes to make the report. He's intercepted by Procula, Pilate's wife, and she's concerned about her dream and what happened. So she asked him to describe in detail what had happened, and he did. And he said, finally we put him in a grave and sealed the tomb just as Pilate ordered. And Procula said, is he still in the tomb? And Polonius said, no, he is not in the tomb. Well, where is he, man? He's loose in the world. And no Jew or Roman can stop his truth. And in Lloyd Douglas' immortal book, The Robe, he has the scene of the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and he has Stephen lifting up his eyes and saying, I see him, I see him, Jesus, take me. And Marcellus is there, and he mentions to the soldier standing by that Stephen has seen someone who's going to help him. The dead Galilean, I I suppose, sneered the soldier. And Marcellus said, That dead Galilean man is not dead. He's more alive than anybody here. You've heard that much-traveled story of R.W. Dale, the great pastor in Birmingham, England, who preached for years but never really came under the reality of the resurrection. One Saturday night he was planning his sermon for Easter Sunday. Now I want you to get the scene. A pastor in his study working on his Easter message had never really been gripped with the reality of it before. This is what he said. I wrote, he is alive. Then I said it to myself, alive. I paused. Alive. I paused again. He's alive. I got up and began to walk around. Is it possible that he's really living as I am living? Jesus is living. Jesus is living. He said, at first it seemed so impossible. It seemed so strange. And then it burst upon me with the light of sudden glory. Jesus is alive forever. 
And the resurrection is power to make a difference in the way you live. I want you to hear me now. It is of immeasurable importance to know that these disciples did not preach the resurrection simply as Jesus escaped from the grave. The reanimation of one who had been dead. The return of a master to his friend. But every time they preached the resurrection, they preached that it was the living God in omnipotent action. They saw that it was God's hand that had taken the stone the builders rejected and made it the head of the corner. And they said, this is marvelous in our sight. In short, they preached and proclaimed that the basis of our faith is this, that this divine creative energy that was strong enough to get Jesus out of the tomb and set in motion the Christian movement throughout the centuries, the same energy that was mighty enough to smash the scheme of the hideous demonic alliance, this same energy that was creative enough to smite death with with resurrection is in action still. In other words, they preached that the same redeeming, creating power that brought Jesus from the grave and set in motion the greatest movement in history is available to you and to me. Are you bound today by some debilitating habit? There's power in Him to release you from that. Are you captured this morning and bound by some resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness, some vengeance? I tell you, there's power in Him to make you love. Are you captured this morning by some sorrow that has literally put out the sun in your life? There's power in Him to make you happy. So I want you to see these two scenes before we go. In one of them, people are cowering behind locked doors in an upper room. On their faces is is despair for everything they'd hoped and dreamed of was now gone. There's no hope, they said. On their faces is shame. They'd been such a failure. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They were probably, th- probably thinking, if we'd been with him, he might not have died. We were sh- scared. We were frightened, so we forsook him and fled. They were ashamed. On their faces is fear. Their master had been brutally murdered, and who knows who is next. On their faces is shame and fear and despair. And the next scene I want you to see just took place just a few days after that. They're no longer in the, in the same room behind locked doors, same men, but they're out in the streets. And their faces are aflame with courageous power, and they're preaching. And their words are like striking iron, and they're fearless, and they're overwhelmingly happy. And the reason, what's happened to them? What happened? The answer is in three words. Jesus is risen. And somehow they had laid hold on that divine energy that had brought Him from the dead. They had laid hold on that for themselves. Or better still, it had laid hold on them. And I'm looking out into the faces in the balcony and on this lower floor today. 
and I see despair in the face of some. There's not much hope for you, you feel. I see shame in the face of some, perhaps. There is unconfessed sin in your life. I see fear in the face of some. What is going to happen to us tomorrow? My finance, all these problems, what am I going to do about them? I tell you, somebody who can transform those into glorious victory, he's the person of the resurrection. And you can lay hold on the power that transformed these men by simple faith. And so D.T. Nile said, when we are raised at the end of this life, our resurrection will just be the glorious consummation of the resurrected life we already have in Jesus. This and I'm through. In Kenneth Scott Latterett's book on civilizations, there is a chapter on the saviors of civilization. He lists them under five categories. Saviors with a scepter, the great kings. Saviors with a sword, the great military heroes, Napoleon, etc. Saviors with a book, the great philosophers who shaped the world, Socrates, Plato, and the God-man saviors. And one by one he took every one of these saviors and he laid them aside because they were inadequate and unworthy of our trust, our, our allegiance, because they had not conquered the last enemy, which is death. And he comes to the God-man saviors of Greek mythology and shows how inadequate and unworthy they are because they all could not conquer death. And he comes in the last part of the chapter to the Savior, capital, and he says in the last paragraph, hear me now, when we come to the end of life and we stand by the river of death, the Savior shall be on the other side waiting the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. For the Savior conquered death. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we pray. Father, things have not been easy for us either. And we've come from every walk of life today because there is something that draws us at Easter time, something in the hope of it, something in the truth of it. We've come today to confess our need of Thee. We come, Father, those of us who are lost, who have never experienced salvation, we've come today to hear that Jesus Christ died and rose, He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. We've come, Father, because we want to place our life here in this church to serve the living Lord. We've come as Christians to say, thank you, praise you for your love. We want to love you more. And so we bow before you, Father, in this moment to say it.
Help us to say it publicly if that's what you desire for us. In Jesus' name. Now our invitations are three. Listen carefully. The first is for you to come today to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. He bled and died and rose in that redemptive experience in order that He might be your Savior and your Lord. But He is not your Savior and your Lord until you invite Him into your life and you trust your life to Him. Second invitation is for you to come and place your life here if you wish to unite with our church, serve God with us who are, who are attempting to grow and reach this community. Be a part of it. We need you. Would you come and join us? Or perhaps to say, I just want to rededicate myself to God. Lay hold on that power which is great enough for my need. We're going to sing together. Our choir will lead us. You stand. You come as God leads you.